Please rise for the reading of God's Word from 1 John, chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. Hear now God's Word. This is the message which we have heard from Him and declared to you that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. The world loves to paint a picture, a caricature of Bible-believing people as ignorant and harsh, and that is partly because many Christians are ignorant and harsh. There are always people on your side who you wish were on the other side. The fact is, there are ignorant and harsh people on all sides. The problem is people. Not the Bible. There are also many informed and gracious Christians who have thought about and written about the Bible and what it actually teaches. The cheap stereotype of ignorant and harsh Christians provides cover for the ignorant and harsh haters of the Bible to remain in their ignorance and hostility. And so as the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But it is equally true, if the Bible is true, that it will be the unbeliever who in the end will be the most pitiable. The Bible says that God is holy and that we are sinful. And that is not good news for any of us. Because if there, on the one hand, if there is no holy God, then I would say live it up because it will soon be over and you will soon be forgotten. However, if there is a holy God, and if you have offended his holiness, then there is nothing that you and I need any more than a Savior. It's an all-or-nothing proposition. So as we head toward Good Friday and Easter morning, I want us to consider why both the crucifixion and the resurrection were so necessary. Necessary for the world, but also necessary for you and necessary for me. And so let's start with the sins that have been committed against you. We have all been offended, we've all been sinned against, and we have all been victimized as a result. Now what? What exactly are you going to do with all of those offenses and sins and victimization that have been committed against you?
How you answer those questions will determine what kind of person you are and what kind of person you are becoming because anger, bitterness, resentment, and a desire for retribution naturally flow out of our pain and out of our shame. Some of those offenses might be recent and fresh, but others might be quite long-standing and deep. You know how destructive, harsh, and foul words can be. Some of you have known the pain of humiliation, of physical violence, and the fear and terror of various kinds of abuse. You know the sting of betrayal and loneliness and abandonment. You have been lied to and you have been stolen from all because selfish people rolled over you like you didn't matter. And while we're not all equal in this, nevertheless, if you have lived in this fallen world for very long, then you have felt these things to some degree. I know some of what you feel. Allow me to turn this around and look at this from another perspective. Have you ever offended anyone? Have you ever sinned against someone? Has anyone ever been victimized by you and your words or your behavior? Have harsh, foul, demeaning words come from your mouth? Have you ever betrayed someone? Have you ever lied or been violent? Have you hurt or damaged someone else? And so I'm going to ask you to do something really difficult, something quite painful for just a moment. I want you to think of the worst thing you have ever done or said to another person. If you're like me, I have quite a list to choose from. Now add to that the worst thought that you have ever had toward another person. I've lost count. Now, I don't want you to dwell on those thoughts, those words or actions, partly because they're too painful and partly because I hope that you have been forgiven those things. But having recalled them, what do we do with them? What do we want other people to do with our sins? And most importantly, what has God done with them? While most of us have lived long enough to gain a measure of humility and gratitude, we have likely lived long enough to have collected a pretty good pile of regrets. I do hope your pile of joys exceeds your regrets, but it's the regrets that I want to speak to for just a few minutes today. I've been a pastor for 40 years, and I've spent countless hours dealing with relational conflicts, hurts, and offenses, some imagined, but most of them real, and many of them quite deep. We have all thought, said, and done many things we shouldn't have, and when we did, we were wrong. Moreover, when we did, we usually hurt someone else, 
We are all victims of someone or something. We have all been offended, and we have all been offenders. There are several factors that contribute to and aggravate this sinful human condition, including ignorance, foolishness, fear, arrogance, pride, habit, tradition, history, culture, and media, just to name a few. The first recorded murder was by one brother against another brother. Put two two two-year-olds in a room with one toy, and I'll bet we can all make some accurate predictions regarding what might happen next. The problem is that we didn't leave selfishness behind when we turned three. And thus, even in our closest relationships... We have manifested the tendencies which two-year-olds have a tougher time disguising. Husbands and wives, siblings, and even close friends can treat one another horribly. Some of you are treating others horribly now. And while we all have regrets, I sincerely hope that you also have lived long enough to have been forgiven for some of the things you did that hurt someone else. And I also hope that you've also had the pleasure of extending true forgiveness to someone who hurt you. Forgiveness is way more than saying you're sorry or even offering an apology. Sometimes an apology can be cheap. But true forgiveness is an act of love, since love is always about sacrificing for the sake of someone else. True forgiveness forgets the offense and never brings it up. And anything less than that is a lie. Allow me to appeal to some Christian theology regarding the critical nature of forgiveness. When I sin against you, deliberately or Out of ignorance, I have taken something from you that didn't belong to me. Perhaps it was your bicycle. Or perhaps it was your dignity. I think all sins are a form of theft, taking something that didn't belong to me. And if I ask you to forgive me for that thing I took from you, I'm asking you to pay for what I stole from you. It's a big request. I'm asking you to cancel my debt. I'm asking you to make a promise not to bring up my debt anymore. I'm asking you to set me free. And if you decide to truly forgive your debtors... Let me tell you something really important. It will set you free, too. Sin separates people, and forgiveness brings them together in communion. Of course, there are some truly bad people in this world, but even bad people occasionally do good things. And there are also many relatively good people, but even the best people do some bad things. And I ran across this quote, which I thought captured it so well. Russian novelist Ivan uh, uh, Turgenev wisely wrote this. He said, I do not know what the heart of a bad man is like. 
But I do know what the heart of a good man is like, and it is terrible. I only know one truly good person that ever lived. And that's why I'm convinced that I need him to be my Savior. No doubt some have had it much harder than others because life seems unfair, but none of us completely escape. So I am not suggesting that all of us are the same in this because we're not, but we do all share this human problem, and all of us are in desperate need of forgiveness. And most of us are in desperate need of forgiving someone. And so I want to briefly unpack our text from 1 John 1, 5 through 8. That was all introduction, setting the table. This is the message, verse 5, which we have heard from Jesus and declared to you. That God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Those are particular sins, plural, not sin in some general way, but those particular things. He is faithful and just to forgive us all the sins that we confess and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This is the message. This is the gospel. This is the good news that we have heard from Jesus. It's the very same message that's been delivered to you. All that fearful darkness that sin produces in you and all that darkness that sin produces in the world. You see, all of us, when we're sinning against God and others, we love darkness rather than light because our deeds are evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds be exposed. Our text tells us that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. To look at his light is to perceive our darkness. There is blackness all around us. There is blackness within us. And John wants us to see the blackness of sin, which is exposed when we look intently in the perfect light of God. Psalm 36.9 says, in your light we see light. Light exposes. I know we live in a world that doesn't want to hear about sin. I don't like to hear about sin. I like to gloss over my sin. I like to excuse my sin, ignore my sin. The Bible says sin makes me calloused. You see, I cannot have a high view of God and his holiness and have a, and have a high view of myself at the same time. Now, if I compare myself to some other people, I can do okay. Compared to him, 
Compared to her, I'm not so bad, I think. But I don't really know them. And I'm not really even being honest about myself when I do that. But when I look at a holy God who's perfect in every way, there is no darkness in him whatsoever. Suddenly, I'm exposed. In him, there isn't the slightest shadow, shade, or stain of darkness. He is moral perfection. His holiness exposes our unholiness. And so if you ever get a good look at his light, you cannot remain in darkness. And this is why we need an incarnate and crucified Christ to wash us with his holy blood. Verse 6 tells us that actions speak louder than words. Many know what to say. They can sit in church week after week and sing the songs and say the liturgy and smile the smile. But the reality is they walk in darkness. Behind the public show, they lie and do not practice the truth. There is no love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control at their house. Only darkness. Fellowship with God is broken or else they never had it in the first place. And anyone who has felt the liberating power of having all their filthy sins forgiven cannot help but feel grace toward other sinners. Verse 7 says that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. If you're not in fellowship with the Christians who are near you, then you're not in fellowship with God, no matter what you might say to the contrary. Those who have seen his light are distinguishable from the rest of the world, as distinguishable as light is from darkness. Those who have seen his light are right with him. And if we are right with God, then we will be right with one another, and that's what happens when our sins are forgiven. Colossians 3 12 through 14. It's one of those passages where you read along and it's easy to go along with and then you get to this one phrase and you realize the Bible doesn't leave me any wiggle room. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, that's how you're described in Christ, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering or patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, and then here's the phrase, even as Christ forgave you. That's the standard. That's the bar. You're to forgive them the way Christ forgave you. So you must also do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of maturity or perfection. You want to be a grown-up Christian? Then treat everyone else the way Christ has treated you. You see, the reason you and I need a Savior, the reason we can have true fellowship with God and with one another is found in the last part of verse 7 which is the center of this passage. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sins.
all sin. That's it. That's the center. That's the center of the gospel. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This week I was listening to Chris Stapleton's song, Where Rainbows Never Die, and he has a line that caught my attention. He's talking about coming to the end of life. He says, I'll wade through muddy waters one last time. And in my dreams, I come out clean. There is nothing like being lost and being found. There is nothing like stepping out of darkness into light. There is nothing like being filthy and being washed clean. And there is nothing like having the heavy burden of guilt lifted off of your shoulders. Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Now I saw in my dream that the highway up which Christian was to go was fenced on either side with a wall, and that wall was called Salvation. And he quotes Isaiah 26.1, In that day shall this song be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. Salvation will God appoint for walls and bulwarks. Up this way, therefore, did burdensome Christian run, but not without great difficulty. Because of the load that was on his back, he ran thus until he came to a, at a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below, in the bottom, a sepulcher, a grave. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosed or fell off of his shoulders and fell off his back and began to tumble and so continued to do so until it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in. And I saw it no more. Then Christian, glad and lightsome, said with a merry heart, He hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Then he stood a while to look and wonder, for it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. He looked, therefore, and looked again, even till the springs that were in his head sent the waters down his cheeks. Then Christian gave three leaps for joy. And went on singing. And he sang this. Thus far did I come laden with my sin. Nor could aught ease the grief that I was in. Till I came hither. What a place is this. Must here be the beginning of my bliss. Must here the burden fall off my back. Must here the strings that bound it to me crack. Blessed cross. Blessed sepulcher. Blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me.
At our Gloria Sancta camp a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Jeffrey suggested that while it would definitely offend our Presbyterian sensibilities, we ought to spontaneously shout for joy, maybe like Bunyan's Christian, give three leaps for joy, or like when our team scores a touchdown, when we hear the assurance of pardon every week. Hear it again. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses from all sin. The word cleanses is in the present tense, which tells us that we need the ongoing benefits of Jesus' atoning death. Every sin is continually covered. Douglas O'Donnell comments, he says, Does John mean the sin of adultery? Bearing false witness, coarse jesting, deceit, envy, fraud, gossip, holding a grudge, idleness, judgmentalism, killing the innocent, lying, malice, not keeping oaths, oppressing the poor, prayerlessness, quarreling, returning insult for insult, slander, trusting in riches, unlawful divorce, violence and witchcraft. Yes, Does he mean the sin of loving the world, loving yourself, not loving your neighbor or enemy or fellow Christian or God? Yes. They are all covered. Every single sin that stains us and makes us too defiled to commune with a holy God has been cleansed by Christ's propitiation His atoning sacrifice for our sin has made fellowship with God possible. Amazing. And then verse 8 warns us again. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth's not in us. Now, few people are foolish enough to say they have no sin at all. They're happy to confess that all have sinned. And yes, I'm a sinner too. But, of course, you have not committed any really big sins, but that's a delusion. You've redefined sin, and you've redefined holiness, because apart from the blood of Christ, your righteousness is filthy. And some have juxtaposed their mystical union with Christ in such a way that they now think their sins are just minor and few. But John warns that such thoughts are a matter of self-deception. Both scripture and experience teach that man is both glorious and monstrous. We indeed are glorious because we're made in the image of God. And while that image has been seriously marred by the fall, nevertheless, that image remains. We do still have some capacity for rational thought, moral choice, artistic creativity, covenant relationships, and worship, but we are also monstrous. As Jesus said, for from within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, and evil eye. Blasphemy, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and defile a man. It is out of the heart, out of the very core of our being, that sin pours out. 
Okay, that's hard to hear. Now what? That's where I asked earlier, what about people who sinned against you? Now what? All this sin, yours, mine, and everyone else's, what is the way forward? Well, part of the solution John gives to the denial of sin is pretty simple. Confess your sins. Admit it. Own it. Confession is just agreeing with what God has already said about you and me. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. No more excuses, no more justification for our sins, just a straight-up-the-middle confession of our sins. Again, particular sins. And don't surround it with buts. Leonard Reed, economist, said that argument drowned in an ocean of buts. Yeah, but he or she, and Lord, the woman you gave me. No, you. You. You remember the prophet Nathan with David? And David was all up in arms about the man who stole the little ewe lamb. And that powerful moment when the finger is pointed at David and said, you are the man. That finger points to me. The Holy Spirit, one of the main works of the Holy Spirit, is to convict us of sin. And we bow at his verdict. How do you plead? Guilty as charged. Again, O'Donnell points out that confession can be public. He gives scripture references to all these. I'll just read this. It can be public, private, individual, corporate. We can confess personal sins, even the sins of others. Confession can make uh, can be made to others, to those offended, and always to God. The confession that John speaks of in 1 John 1, 9 is to God. Following the biblical pattern for confession, we are to present our transgressions to the Lord, knowing that whoever confesses will obtain mercy. Throughout Scripture, we find warnings about the danger of concealing our sins as well as the blessing of confessing them. Proverbs 28:13, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Ephesians 2.13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Remember Isaiah 59 says that your iniquities have separated you from God and your sins have hidden his face from you. What did Adam and Eve do when they sinned? They hid. They were, their fellowship was broken from God. But in Christ, by his blood and through the cross, we are brought near to God. We are restored in our fellowship. Verse 10 then finally returns. And reminds us one more time that if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. 
Proverbs 30:20, we find one of those poignant proverbs says this, this is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. This is what unrepentant sinners of all sorts do. We eat the forbidden fruit, wipe our mouth and say, I haven't sinned. I haven't done anything wrong. What do I need to confess? But God's word tells us that he hates such a denial and he hates it because to say that we have not sinned is to call God a liar. For you see, no one in the kingdom of God on earth has been so transformed by God that they have reached a level of spiritual maturity that excludes the need for ongoing forgiveness. No one has reached sinless perfection, and we are all sinners and still need in need of cleansing. So how many sins have been committed in the world? There's an ocean of sin, and you and I have contributed our share. Very early in the Bible, Genesis 6-5, we read, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. But the Bible is God's story about sin and redemption from sin. Romans 5, for when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And having been reconciled, Remaining sin, my daily sins, your daily sins still need forgiving because we're growing in grace. We are being sanctified. And so John writes in chapter 2, 1 John, My little children, these things I write to you, you Christians, that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the whole world. And having been reconciled to him, the evidence that forgiveness of that forgiveness necessarily shows up in our forgiveness of one another. I close with 1 John 4, 7 through 11. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God is manifested toward us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. 
And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Let's pray. Almighty God, you love us, but we have not always loved you. You call, but we have not always listened. We sometimes walk away from neighbors in need, wrapped in our own concerns. We can find ourselves condoning evil and prejudice and greed. God of grace, help us to confess our sins so that as you come to us in mercy, we may repent, turn to you, and receive forgiveness through Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. O Lord, you are holy, and we are sinful. You are strong, and we are weak. You are ever in the light, and we walk in darkness. Give us of your Spirit that in penitence and trust we may grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Enlighten our minds, purify our hearts, renew our wills, And may we give ourselves wholly to you for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. The Bible is full of reminders. How often we might read something and say, yeah, I know that. I know that. I know that. I heard that sermon today. I knew all that today. Yeah, but do we really know it? Are we really living it? Is it coming out of us? That's when we'll know that we know it. And so the Bible never apologizes for saying it again. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? We've got a problem. (laughs) There is none righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And he just said, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Don't fool yourself. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous. Have you ever been covetous? Nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. I think that we're covered somewhere in there, all of us. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. That is so powerful. How could we forget that? The table of the Lord is the place of covenant renewal. Each Lord's Day, at the beginning of each new week, we have a new beginning. We come to remember so that we can turn and face the future. We remember who He is and what He's done for us so that we can also remember who we are and what we have been called to. All of our life, all of our activities are to to be in service to him. His glory is our chief end.
And so I ask you to pause today and consider, don't just come to another church service and soon we'll have the benediction and we'll eat and you'll go home and go back to our regularly scheduled events. I hope you came here today to be changed by the living Word of God and to have the Holy Spirit at work in your heart to turn you into something better than you are when you came in. I ask you to pause and consider what adjustments or changes need to be made in your life, in your family, to ensure that the trajectory of your future is on the right track. Is there confession of sin that needs to be made? Is there forgiveness that needs to be sought or granted? Are there relationships that need mending and improving? Are there schedules and activities that need to be adjusted? Are there ministries that need to be started or renewed? You know the other kinds of questions that need to be asked and answered. We all need to make adjustments and to refocus on what is essential and central As we eat and drink today, may we do so with sincere hearts, genuine faith, and deep thanksgiving. Let us come to the table. O Lord, indeed, we give you thanks today for your incredible mercy, your loving kindness, which is new each morning, all for Christ's sake. Lord, help us now as we go forth to live unto him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen.